everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Buckeye Dads Discuss. I'm Josh. And I'm Andy. And I almost said I almost said I'm Andy. Andy. Uh how you been, man? Hey, that that was interesting idea for a show. Let's uh let's flip-flop. Oh. I will I'll be the vaccine guy. I will be the uh everything else guy then. <laughs> <laughs> doing good, man. Doing good. Um it's been a wild week in the world, but hey. Did you see, I tweeted this earlier, some of, I mean, like the most exciting thing that I've seen in, in weeks, at least. I I don't think I saw it. What's up? All right. So I don't know if you're a Handmaid's Tale fan, but first (laughs) of all, it's coming at the end of the month and I'm ready to go, but they released a map. They've never, as far as I know, they haven't done this before. I'm gonna look like an idiot if they have, but it's a map of where Gilead is what places are kind of up in the air where okay. the rebels are still holding out. And then the places that are in conflict where there's like active conflict zones. And I was so damn proud that there was just this tiny little strip of Northwest Ohio that is holding out against the evil Gilead empire, Toledo, Ohio. <laughs> we are a stronghold. We are holding out. We are a bastion of freedom, opening up that road to Canada, that beautiful Canadian freedom. So I was pretty jacked by that. Or, I mean, there you go. I mean, you have, you know, the great cities of the world, New York City, London, Paris, and you got good old Toledo, Ohio right there, man. Hey, if I if I have to play the role of you today, I just had a pop culture reference. So I'm, I'm already <laughs> ahead of the game here. Oh, awesome. Awesome. You know, that's a show that I feel like I would really like. And to be honest, like, it's very possible that my wife's already, you know, completely caught up and just never told me that she started watching it. But, uh, we're we're coming to a, a point in our TV schedule where we got one more episode of Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Just got done literally a half an hour ago finishing it up. Uh even better than WandaVision. I mean, this show is just in in my wheelhouse. Uh and it's so good. Uh so we got one more week next week, and then we got a little bit of a break uh from the Marvel uh domination of both TV and movies. And uh maybe I'll we'll jump in and we'll we'll start that show then. It was absolutely terrifying when Trump was still in office because it just felt so possible. So now that he's out of office, it's, I mean, I'm not going to say it's lighthearted by any means, but it's not quite so terrifying. Yeah. And that is actually kind of a randomly good segue into how my week has been going, just in the sense that like what's going on in the country right now is crazy and we're going to get into it quite a bit, but, uh, Now that, you know, I've kind of unclenched a little bit, you know, Biden's rapidly approaching his first hundred days in office being done. Uh, You know, the Trump stink has finally started to dissipate. You know, he's not really in the news nearly as much as I thought he would be um, at this point. And Biden's not really in the news nearly as much as I thought he would be. You know, his administration is is going to work, uh, but I don't see him all the time. I don't hear him all the time. And it's just been nice to let kind of some of the more national, especially political news, uh, ease back a little bit. Of course, you know, we still got tons of problems to address, and we're going to talk about some of that today. But it's just been nice not having to feel like I've got to be glued to my phone just to, you know, know what crazy thing our president said. So it's it's been nice. Hey, I mean, he hardly ever tweets anymore. (laughs) never gets old oh man it's still just like it's just 
you know, it, it, my toddler acts up and I take away his favorite toy. And it's just like, you just did that to one of the most powerful people in the world. And it's just, I cannot get over it. Yo, that's a big time time out though. I mean, <laughs> as, as, as someone who, you know, does behavior for a living, he has been, they put him in the corner for a while. <laughs> oh man. Just, I mean, he deserved every second of it, but I mean, he's been in the corner for a while now. Yeah, and uh, you know, I sometimes you deserve the punishment you get. Karma's a bitch. Absolutely. I don't know what's that. All right, Andy. Before we jump into our first big topic, uh, I just want to hit you with some really, uh, you know, pretty small things, real quick that uh, uh, I, I saw on social media and just uh, couldn't get over. You know, again, Trump might be out of the news, but his uh, his disciples uh, are still alive and well. Uh, so I just wanted to point out just a couple of random things that uh, I, I heard today, some jokes I'm going to steal from the internet. There were two House members who voted against the National uh, Bone Marrow Registry. Uh, and, you know, again, that's a, a valuable tool to help people, uh, you know, who are going through cancer. And um, Lauren Bobert and Marjorie Taylor Green, who's like, you know, Trump's favorite niece, probably. Uh, those were the two people who voted against uh, uh, this bill. And, uh, you know, it's just cancer supporting cancer. What can you say? I mean, can you really blame them? Uh, it's a big surprise it was those two. Did you see Marjorie Taylor Greene's uh, I work out and this is my vaccine video? <laughs> I, I did. Like, uh, just the form on those pull-ups was just... Uh, uh, what? unsafe what unsafe. was that <laughs> uh, pretty sure that's how you uh that's how you end up in the hospital throwing your back out like i don't know what that was my back hurt for the next three days just watching it <laughs> that was uh, insane <laughs> uh speaking of uh marjorie taylor green she and some other uh, uh really like the most uh devout trump disciples have started what's called an America first caucus. Did you hear about this today? I did not hear about that one. Okay. I'm going to read you what they, what they're calling for word for word. And just give me your reaction. Uh, the, the central principle for them is they call for a respect for uniquely Anglo-Saxon political traditions. Whoa. Can you translate that for, for the audience, please? Stand up and stand down. Like that is white supremacy. <laughs> like, I, I, right? I just, <laughs> I'm not missing anything, right? Like that is based. Like you could have said that was the KKK's motto, and we'd have been on course. Oh man, you took the words. I was just gonna say instead, <laughs> just call yourself the KK Caucus. It's what I would have gone with because that, wow, that is exactly what that is. Wow. Uh, and then lastly, shifting out of the politics. Bernie Madoff, uh, you know, the kind of, you know, prototypical financial criminal Ponzi scheme extraordinaire died at 82. Uh, And uh, a message went out to anyone who was going to attend his funeral that said, if possible, please invite two other friends to the event. Wow. That is good. (laughs) That is good. Oh, man, it's just, I mean, again, it's just nice that some of this stuff can kind of be in the, you know, in the far corners 
of you know the national conscience instead of front and center with Trump. Uh, but yeah, there's there's still people out there with crazy ideas. Uh, they need to be uh, called out, ridiculed, um, and just not you know taken seriously in any way whatsoever. But uh, fortunately for now, we can cut we can put them a little bit on the back burner. Yeah, I, I could only imagine the the support that the would you say it was the America First Caucus? I mean, mm-hmm. Trump would have been eating that up. And tweeting that up. Just unbelievable. Unbelievable. All right, Andy, we're going to move to something far more serious, far more important in the public conscious. This week, on April 13th, the CDC and FDA recommended a pause in the use of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. In nearly 7 million doses administered so far in the United States, uh, about six cases and counting, of a rare and severe type of blood clot have been reported in people after receiving the vaccine. Uh, so the government comes out and says, uh, we, we've seen these cases, we're going to pause. And we are still paused um, as of this week. This is likely going to be at least a week to 10 days or so before we get an official recommendation, and it might even be longer. Uh, as Anybody who's listened to the show knows I, I'm going to have a lot to say about this. But Andy, as a recipient of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, take me through, you first hear this news, what do you think? And then what do you feel as you kind of, I'm sure, dive into it and kind of read up a little more about it? Yeah, so I did get the, the J&J vaccine. Uh, I've, I've reached what, what Zach is calling uh, immortality. So I, I've passed my 14 days now. But so this news comes out and I'm on like day, I want to say 11, which is right in that that sweet spot window for where these things, th- these really rare events, but that was where they were happening was between day six and day 13. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm going to be honest, when I first saw that the vaccine was pausing and that it was the vaccine that was also flowing through my veins at that point, I had a little bit of an oh shit moment. Um, and then when I dug into it and saw what it was and that it was literally a one in a million type thing, it, it, it was a lot less concerning, but I think the important thing was that initial reaction was, uh, oh, you know, because to, to think that something is going to be to the point where they're going to need to pause it and d- decide if they want to go forward with using it or not. I, I think that, I mean, that put a little bit of a scare into me until I read into it a little bit more. It's it's the true good, uh, too good to be true thing, right? You know, like we we've been singing the praises of these vaccines, rightfully so. We got them up and running very quickly. We did the clinical trial data that we that we thought that we needed. Uh, it's trucking along against seven million and counting doses in the United States, and then whoa, whoa, something comes up, right? But again, as you say, we dive in a little bit more and we start. Okay, what are we looking at? So as you said, uh, six to 13 days after injection, uh, all cases so far have been in white women between the ages of 18 and 48, I believe, as of uh, the last time I looked at this, you know, yesterday or the day before. And again, this is not something, you know, again, this is not, you know, oh, I got an injection and my arm hurts a little bit. Uh, You know, these are very rare type of blood clot. Um, You know, one patient has died. Uh, 
at least one more is in critical condition and there's people who have not yet recovered from it so far. Um, so again, this is not something to take lightly uh, by any means. Uh, and, I, and I think one of the most important things to call out right away is that a reason for this pause is, you know, you think blood clots and if I'm a doctor, I'm going to use the treatment that we normally do for blood clots, which is an anticoagulant, in this case, heparin for the most part. Uh, but these rare type of blood clots, you do not want to use heparin for these. You want to use a different type of treatment. Um, so it's important to disseminate that information to doctors in the country as quickly as possible for them to both, one, be on the lookout for these type of symptoms of these of these clots, and two, and more importantly, to know how to treat them if they do present themselves. So that's all well and good. I don't have any issues with that. Um, and again, like you say, uh, you know, you are uh, much more than me. You are the stats guy. Uh, you actually went to stats class in college, whereas I did not. Uh, you, I think, took many more classes where uh, the use of statistics was a more integral part of the class. Literally one in a million is what we're talking about here. Yeah, and I think it's it's important, like thinking of something that's one in a million, it's, it's so hard to even conceptualize numbers that big. I mean, we're talking like, I think being struck by lightning is more likely. I mean, so we're, we're talking about some really, really teeny tiny chances. And yeah, I mean, there's a lot of reason for, for the bias. You know, our, our brains typically pay attention to things that are really shocking and really splashy. So, you know, we think of, oh, I don't want to die randomly of a blood clot. So I, we give that way more weight than really the statistics bear out. And it's just humanity. And it's really hard to, you know, look at that objectively when it's like yeah it happens really 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 rarely but i don't want to be the one guy that it happens to um but that is a really 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 small number a really I mean, small percentage we don't read news stories anymore about oh this one person died of covid right like more than five hundred thousand americans have died of covid uh and so the the flip side of of this coin is that pausing vaccinations, reducing the amount of people who are getting vaccinated each day does actually have, a, you know, probably by people smarter than me, a measurable outcome. And, you know, there are people who are not going to get vaccinated who are going to be exposed to coronavirus and maybe they themselves will get very sick and die, but they might spread that to somebody who could. Um, but you just don't, you know, we're, not, we're done reading stories about oh, this father of three who was an upstanding member of his community, you know, and saved kittens out of trees, died of coronavirus. Like, we've read that story so many times. You know, it doesn't hold that unique, uh, you know, glitz that, that you talk about. And, and so we don't necessarily prioritize it as much as, you know. And again, this is, of course, not the, you know, make light of. If you're the family of this person who died of these blood clots, you know, you have a whole different perspective uh, than what our perspective is right now. But again, if you are a prospective person and your choices are, you know, get a vaccine that has a one in a million chance of causing this or, you know, not get vaccinated and have a much higher risk of being affected by COVID, uh, it's really hard for people to weigh those options rationally. Uh, and there, there is actually a mathematical answer that says, yes, you still need to get vaccinated. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think a good way to think about this is, I mean, people play the lottery every day 
because they don't understand statistics with really, really big numbers. And I mean, I'm not going to lie. I've played the lottery too, because the fantasy of winning a shitload of money is more attractive than, you know, objectively, I know there's no chance I'm going to win, but it's like, yeah, you know, I'll throw a buck at it. So it's kind of the reverse of that. You know, it's it just really, really big numbers are hard to understand. And I think it's only natural to give them more weight than what one in a million really means. So it's funny that you use the lottery as an example, because uh, again, I don't really talk about uh, work very much on this podcast and I'm going to continue to, to, to not do that because, you know, that's a, you know, we work with some sensitive information and that involves other people who are in a part of this uh, podcast. So that's all well and good, but uh, several members of my team do like to play the lottery and every, <laughs> every time they do, and they ask me if I want to join in, I, Every time I say the same thing, which is, you know, it would impact your life much more positively if you just gave that money to me to use in the vending machine, because you're not winning any money from the lottery and I'll be in a slightly better mood. So, um, yeah, again, I've, I've never played. I don't think I've ever used my own money to, to purchase lottery tickets, and, and I don't think I ever will. That, that, that's a nice little boss flex you got going on there. <laughs> hey, I got to got to flex sometimes, so. Um, <laughs> all right, I'm going to lay out the crux of this issue and give you some evidence on both sides. I'm going to get your opinion and then I'm going to give mine. So there is, you know, the fundamental issue with this pause is vaccine hesitancy. So we are already getting to the point in here in Ohio where we're starting to have more, we are starting to have a demand. No, 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 no. Yeah, a demand problem. We're starting to have a demand problem as opposed to a supply problem. We have more people now in the state, in certain parts of the state, I'm not going to say it's everywhere, where if you want if you want a vaccine, by all means. I mean, some places now in Salido, you don't even need an appointment anymore. You can just walk in. Get wait in line for a little bit, get your vaccine. There's plenty of vaccine. Uh, the people who wanted to get vaccinated, at least in this state, at least in this area, you know, we are coming to the tail end where those people are waiting to get vaccinated. By and large, they are vaccinated or, or they're in the middle of being vaccinated. Those people are going to be done pretty soon. Very soon, we are going to be turning to how are we going to get the people who are hesitant about the vaccine. And again, I'm not going to paint everybody with the same brush. Just because you're hesitant about getting vaccinated does not mean you're an anti-vaxxer. They are two different things. Uh, There are people that, you know, just say, hey, like this is, you know, I'm not the most medically inclined person and I'm not following the news very much. And it's a new technology and we've been living with this for a while. and I'm just not sure about it. That's completely different than... You know, I don't want a Bill Gates microchip floating around in my body. Uh, so I want to be clear about that. I know I've been kind of very crass about anti-vax sentiment on the show before, and I, I probably will continue to be. But so there are people who are unsure or definitely will not get the vaccine, and we still need a good chunk of them to get vaccinated if we're going to reach herd immunity um, and start to get the pandemic under control. So 
there are two ways that you can go about doing this when you have a vaccine that has a one in a million, you know, side effect, literally one in a million side effect. And just to be clear, that's only one of the formulations. The other two, the two dose formulations aren't even having this side effect. Yes, that's an extremely good point by you. Again, we are just talking about the Johnson and Johnson vaccine here in the U.S., uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine in Europe, which is not approved yet in the United States and almost certainly won't ever be a part of our vaccine plan, um, I believe is another of uh, both of these uh, vaccines are adenovirus based vaccines. They're not using the mRNA technology. They are using technology that is more similar to what, we, what we've used in the past with the vaccines all of us have have, have received over the years. It is, it is not these two new vaccines. It is not the new technology. And before I dive into this argument, I just want to point out that confidence in the two mRNA vaccines has not measurably decreased, which is very good. So people are savvy enough to realize, hey, this is an issue specific to the Johnson & Johnson one. Just because we're having a Johnson & Johnson issue doesn't mean that we have to worry about the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. And that is great news. So I just want to make sure that that point's clear. All right, so on door number one, you have Fauci and Tom Frieden and a bunch of these doctors saying, look, the way to make people feel better about vaccines, this Johnson Johnson vaccine, is to say, look, you have concerns and we are going to address them and we are going to err on the side of safety. And we're going to say, okay, you should be impressed and feel good that we were able to notice a sign effect, six cases out of 7 million vaccines. That means the surveillance program is very sensitive uh, and we can detect these very rare sign effects. That's all good news. But the way to make people feel better about it is to say, if a potential issue comes up, we're going to pause, we're going to stop, we're going to investigate, we're going to not let this vaccine go in any more arms uh, until we you know, look at the data, make a rational decision, um, and, and you should feel good about that because you, we care about you and we care about your safety. And, and so you should trust us and you should, what we say inevitably, uh, because I would wager a very large sum of money that eventually the FDA is going to say that either for everyone or maybe everyone except a small subset of people, the Johnson Johnson vaccine is perfectly fine to get. Uh, and and so that's what the doctors are saying. We're gonna you know go slow and trust us, and therefore you should take the vaccine. What do you think of that argument, Andy? Just on its face. I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense in one sense. I mean, yes, to just inject people with a new vaccine, and then for these reports to be out there that you know, bad things are happening and for there to be no response, I think there's definitely an argument to be made that people aren't going to feel safe if you have, you know, one, two, 20 reports of, hey, there's there's some blood clot stuff going on and the CDC's response is silence. That looks a little, I, I mean, there, there's some people that are going to look at that and say, they don't give a shit what's in these things and what's happening. They're just pushing them on us. So I, I definitely think that there is, I mean, it's, it's, it's logical from one perspective to look at that and say, if we're catching these things, it's because we care. Okay. 
and again, I don't disagree with anything that you just said. And from again, I would say that this perspective is largely being driven by the medical community, by the CDC, by the FDA. And I think that is this is sound medical advice. However, we go back to door number two, okay? And the flip side of this coin is there's a, a school of thought that says, no, you pausing this vaccine use is going to do potentially irreparable damage to the reputation of this vaccine uh, and that you have actually done a severe disservice with, uh, you know, again, going back, the CDC is largely focused on public health, right? It's not necessarily 100% what each individual person is going to react to. It's for the, the country as a whole. And for you to say, you know, we're going to pause this vaccine, we are going to have people not get vaccinated that otherwise might have uh, been scheduled for Johnson & Johnson, because we have to we have to agree. I mean, logic is going to say that there are some people who said, I don't want one of the two new mRNA vaccines. It's new technology. It's going to rewrite your DNA or whatever, you know, conspiracy theory they read online. And then they say, okay, the Johnson Johnson vaccine is more similar to what I've already had. That's the one I want. And now we're pausing this one. So there are going to be some people who are going to be vaccinated who are not going to be vaccinated anymore. And that's a huge issue. And to kind of support this again, you know, polling data is polling data, take it with a grain of salt, but a respective YouGov America pollster polled sentiment about the Johnson Johnson vaccine specifically uh, before the CDC announcement and then after the CDC announcement. Uh, before the announcement, 52% of people thought it was safe, 26% of people thought it was unsafe, and then you probably have a quarter of people who essentially say, unsure, don't know, don't respond. Uh, after the announcement, this drops all the way to 37% of people thinking it's safe. So minus 15 points. The number of people who say it's unsafe goes up to 39%, up 13 points. So you go from a two-to-one favorability to essentially a one-to-one favorability uh, for this vaccine. And again, you know, that's, I don't know if you're going to be able to recover from that. Yeah, I mean, I th I think it, it, it does put everybody in a tough spot because, like I said, you know, I mean, I think it could have been there's all of these reports coming out. And if they did nothing, it, I think it's very possible that, you know, that data may have still looked similar by doing this. I mean, you're, you're if you're the CDC, you're in a tough spot because you can either ignore it and hope that people just, you know, write it off as right wing propaganda or you call attention to it and say, you know, hold on, let's take a look at this. And then you have vaccine hesitancy on either side. Um, I mean, there is a bit of a historical case with a, a famous company and it's escaping my mind right now, but you know, they, have you heard of the, the Chicago Tylenol murders? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I can't remember the name of the company. I think it was Johnson and Johnson and it was definitely Johnson and Johnson. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you already have, you know, in the not distant past, I mean, it was what it was their their baby powder, like their diaper powder had like uh, it had something in it that it wasn't supposed to have in it. Um, well, well, hold on a minute, because I think Johnson and Johnson makes both cases here with with yeah. their history. So so in the Tylenol murders, it was 
Tylenol that was laced with, I can't remember what it was, but it was laced with something and it, it killed a bunch of people in a short period of time in Chicago. And what Johnson and Johnson did was pull all of their Tylenol from everywhere, a massive yep. recall. It was the first real massive recall like that in American history and public trust in Johnson and Johnson went through the roof because they were willing to forego their profits for that recall. So in that case with Johnson and Johnson, yes. I mean, the, the, the Fauci theory of if we, you know, say, hold on, let, let's take a minute and look at this in that situation, it actually vastly increased the public trust in the company. So there, that, I think that is a huge argument for that. But yes, I mean, you're absolutely right. Johnson & Johnson has also covered up and done a whole bunch of shady shit and was one of, I mean, the number one reason why when I realized that that was going to be my first option for the vaccine. I said, oh, Johnson & Johnson is my favorite company. I do trust this vaccine, but I don't love them as a company because they covered up a whole bunch of stuff with carcinogens in the baby powder and feminine hygiene products. Right. And I think that was kind of the opposite argument of there was a whole lot of evidence linking a Johnson & Johnson product to negative outcomes. And their response to that was basically like, nah, we're fine. Right and come sue us it if you, if has you, absolutely hurt their go. public reputation right 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 it, but so no, i was just saying it just really hurt public you know uh, right no exactly uh the thing though i wonder about the tylenol uh murders which i i looked it up while you're talking and cyanide there it was laced with potassium cyanide um is tylenol already at that point when this happens you know it's relatively well established as you know it's not a novel vaccine that's been around for less than a year so you can do that recall and it's a it's a product that people know already is safe except because of this certain circumstance uh and and they get and again they should be commended for that you know back in the day when this happened but now you have it's new tech right even though it's based on an old vector it's still a new vaccine for a new disease and you know, again, you know, combined with some of their other issues, you make it, you know, not super appealing for a lot of people. Um, what I would have liked to have seen. So again, I fall to be clear. I fall in the, I, I, I don't like the pause. I think it's misguided. Again, this is getting, this is me being armchair epidemiologist. Obviously, there are people who are very uh, uh, more knowledgeable and 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 much more, uh, you know, know what they're talking about who are you know saying yes this is the right decision um nate silver on twitter i don't know if you follow him at all you know political pulsar guru is one of these people leading the charge against the pause uh because again you this doesn't have to be black and white right it doesn't have to be either you pause everything um or you just you know quietly brush it under the rug and and keep going several other options that the cdc and the fda could have pursued were just issue a statement that says we are aware that there is a one in a million side effect going around right now. Uh, we are investigating it. Uh, but overall, we do not think yet that there is sufficient data uh, to, you know, pause the vaccine that is still from a risk benefit uh, analysis. Uh, it is still better to get vaccinated against a deadly uh, coronavirus than to not. Um, and you can give information or the other thing that you can do is you can say, we are going to pause, but we are going to pause this vaccine for, you know, 16 to 49 year old women 
because the the these cases are so far in a very narrow range uh you know demogra- uh, demographic wise so they're it's only women it's only white women it's only women from a certain age relatively on the younger side the side that's less vulnerable to covid so you could say you know we're not going to pause this for everyone we're just going to pause this for a subset of people until we've gone through the data or again just say we're aware of this one in a million side effect it's largely you know in women uh caucasian women if you're caucasian women maybe you consider getting a different vaccine but otherwise you know we're going to keep doing this as we investigate and i like both of those options significantly more uh than a full pause yeah, I wonder how much the fact that it was Johnson & Johnson specifically and kind of the, the fact that they're a company that the public's, you know, t- trending down in terms of public trust. I wonder mm-hmm. if that w- was factored into it at all, that if it had been, you know, a Pfizer or Moderna that doesn't necessarily have that. I mean, for, for I mean, I'm just going to be a little bit blunt here that that public reputation is this company lies to our faces a little bit. I wonder if they would have taking a less conservative approach. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I uh, I have no desire to say anything about Johnson & Johnson from a professional standpoint because uh, for professional reasons, I, I really can't, I really can't speak about it. But uh, yes, I think your sentiment is, uh, is very well taken. Uh, so one more thing I want to touch on before we move off this topic is to just take a step back because rightfully so obviously this is a very ohio-centric show a very united states-centric show but pandemics you know by definition means worldwide Um, and there was uh, an excellent new york times story uh written by benjamin moeller um that talks about what vaccine hesitancy particularly with the AstraZeneca and Johnson Johnson vaccines means for the rest of the world, which is, uh, you know, a perspective we have not looked at very much on this show. Uh, but I'm going to read just a little bit, uh, just the lead of this piece. Uh, Safety worries about the AstraZeneca and Johnson Johnson vaccines have jeopardized inoculation campaigns far beyond the United States, undercutting faith in two sorely needed shots and threatening to prolong the coronavirus pandemic in countries that can ill afford to be choosy about vaccines. Um, so this story largely centers on uh, Africa, but really it's applicable to many other parts of the world, uh, you know, developing portions of the world. Uh, and the gist of this article is, uh, you know, America has the Johnson Johnson vaccine pause. Uh, the EU, I just uh, found this out, uh, kind of doing some digging before the show started, the EU has actually decided that they are no longer going to purchase any more AstraZeneca or Johnson & Johnson vaccines, uh, that they are going to 100% rely on Pfizer and Moderna to finish uh, executing their uh, you know, vaccine rollout. Uh, again, EU-specific, so the UK, uh, which is where the AstraZeneca vaccine uh, was uh, developed uh, is still plugging along with the AstraZeneca vaccine, and they have they are starting to turn the corner, uh, as are we from a case perspective and from a death perspective. Um, but these two vaccines that have been you know seen damage to their reputations 
are the most important vaccines for getting the world vaccinated and ultimately ending the pandemic because you really need as many people as possible uh, with how international we are as a society, how much travel we have between all parts of the world. The AstraZeneca and Johnson Johnson vaccines are cheaper than the mRNA vaccines. They can be stored in a fridge, uh, which is very important in certain parts of the world as opposed to needing a freezer. Uh, and you just have a widespread now hesitancy, caution about getting people to take these vaccines for, I have not read as much about the AstraZeneca vaccine, but for the Johnson Johnson vaccine, uh, you know, something that is a side effect that's one in a million. So I, I don't really know. I there, There's not a lot to say ab- about that, Andy, but uh, it's just, uh, it's just unfortunate that, you know, this looks to be another, you know, always seems to come back to that case of the haves and the have nots. And, uh, you know, we have the luxury in America to, you know, have our pick of these vaccines, but a lot of places in the world can't say the same. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see once this pause is over. And I don't think it's going to be a, a very long pause. It doesn't seem like it's going to be a very long pause. It, I, I'd imagine that the numbers will get some sort of a rebound. It'll be interesting to see how far they actually go in rebounding, you know, those confidence numbers. I, I'm sure they'll get a, a little bit of a shot in the arm, pun slightly intended there, but you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Uh, how high they really go right because i mean again hopefully we see a good bounce we 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 still had millions of people get that vaccine and as the weeks go by they're gonna say oh well i was fine afterwards or you know you know it seems like the three of you who got it a couple weeks ago you guys are all kind of put on your ass uh that that first day after but otherwise it seems like people have been fine with it so as more and more people get it and feel fine and again start to wrap their minds around what one in a million means. Uh, Hopefully, like you said, there will be that rebound. And again, if there is that rebound, this speaks very well to the brilliant minds at the FDA and the CDC to say, actually, long-term confidence is more important. And this was the right decision. It's just in this moment to me, it just looks really hard to swallow. Yeah. I mean, I'm with you on that. I think, it's just so hard for people to to conceive of big numbers like that. That I mean, I think it's optimistic and and hopeful of me to say there'll be a nice rebound because I mean, realistically, I don't think that's what's going to happen. But let's hope so. Yeah, I mean, realistically, what might just happen is all the people who want to get vaccinated are vaccinated, probably largely with Pfizer and Moderna, and then it's figuring out what line of reason is going to get people who are on the fence to come down and get vaccinated. And it's probably going to have to be, you know, you get 10, you know, vaccine hesitant people and 10 different reasons might speak to those 10 people about what will be the final thing to actually get them vaccinated. Have you, have you, uh, you had any success in your extended social circle on uh, any hesitant people getting vaccinated? No, but honestly, I don't think I have a, a, a terribly high number of vaccine hesitant people in my extended circles. I, I think one is probably largely, I, I'm not even going to say one. I think that I have a handful of people that are probably just, you know, under the spell of Fox News. And I think that one's going to be really tough to break. And I have, you know, a, a person or two that's had 
a bad experience with a previous vaccine, which I think is by far the most understandable thing of it's nothing specific about these vaccines. It was just a really negative reaction to a different vaccine. So, I mean, like, 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 like a pretty scary one. So, I mean, I think that, I mean, that that's very personal, whereas, you know, I, 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 and I think that's interesting because those are so different approach, you know, someone that's had one really negative experience, you, you would have to approach that hesitancy in a totally different way than, you know, the, the, the Rupert Murdoch spell people. Oh yeah. I mean, absolutely. Like I, those are, those are apples and oranges to me. Like, you know, there's a reason that after I got my Moderna vaccine, uh, they made me sit there for 15 to 30 minutes after my vaccine to make sure that I didn't have some anaphylactic reaction and keel over and need to get, you know, you know, an EpiPen put in me, uh, to keep me alive. And, and again, that can happen. There are some specific components in vaccines that people can be allergic to, uh, and can have really, uh, severe reactions to that to me is completely different than the, you know, the, the Fox news brainwashed person who just won't accept all the myriad reasons again, because usually like for some of these really common reasons why people really don't want to be vaccinated, like there's an alternative, you know, now that you have both Johnson and Johnson and the MRNA vaccines, it's like, Oh, if you have this concern, you could get this one. And if you have this concern, you could get that one. Um, and so it's really tough. I, uh, uh, unfortunately have been, uh, I have more people in my extended uh, circle who are more hesitant. I will, I will say, uh, kindly and uh, i have not made any headway so far um but i'm hopeful it's 2021 it's a year to be hopeful do you know who the base the biggest demographic group that is has vaccine hesitancy is uh is it republicans yeah we could even get more specific than that if you wanted to male republicans we could even get more specific than that if you wanted to or we can stop there (laughs) yes uh there's a a certain demographic uh that just uh just doesn't want to listen i mean again and that 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 demographic also just doesn't generally want to go to the doctor anyway so um you know again i'm going to uh go get my yearly checkup and uh get my blood drawn and try my best to do what the doctor says and uh Hopefully I'll, I'll live a little bit longer and have a little bit more fuller life because of it. So uh, I, I decided when I turned 30, I was going to start going to the doctor regularly. And then when I turned 32, I actually started going. <laughs> well, good for you, Andy. Good for you. Okay. So believe it or not, this is actually going to be like the less serious. That was the less serious issue of what we're going to talk about today. So the country has been, I don't know, in chaos, I guess, uh, over the last week. I, I I mean, that's probably putting it nicely. It's been a very violent week in 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 America. And that's uh it's it's really I'm just gonna be completely honest, it's really hard to deal with. Yeah. This 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 week has been brutal. And as you know, I mean our, our COVID numbers here locally are through the roof and you know heading back towards as bad as they've been. But I mean, even as the pandemic itself, I feel like, you know, we're entering a new phase of, of positivity, man, we are not in any way entering a new phase of reduced violence in this country. That shit's still as out of control as it's ever been. Just, I, I, I don't want to be glib, but I swear it feels like we're just trying to catch up for the last year of being 
shut indoors in a pandemic and it's like okay the people are getting vaccinated and the weather's getting nice let's go outside and let's shoot some people yeah i mean i i legit like not not trying to be flippant here but like were did people just not have like target rich enough environments and decided to stay home and wait until people started going back out in public to do this i i i i don't know man i don't know um so there's I don't know. The, the, as of last night when I uh, was working on this outline, there were three topics we were going to touch on. Uh, we've added the the FedEx Indianapolis shooting uh, as of as of today. So, Andy, you've been uh, you've been watching more closely than I the Derek Chauvin trial. Can you kind of walk us through what's been happening so far and where we're heading? Yeah. So, you know, we're recording here on. Uh, Friday the 16th. So it's been about three weeks of testimony. Uh, the, both the state and the defense have now rested their cases. They gave the jury Friday off. So it'll be closing statements on Monday and then the jury will start deliberations. It's been an interesting trial. It's, it's, it's all been live stream, which uh, I guess is new for Minnesota. Minnesota is, I guess, one of the states that's a little bit less liberal with broadcasting trials, but because of the pandemic, media has not been allowed in the courtroom at all. Or I guess there's one one member of the print media and one member of digital media that's been allowed in the courtroom. And other than that, it's it's been live streamed and everybody's been watching it remotely. So I don't think it's close at all, if we're being perfectly honest. I think the state has put on a really good case. I think the defense, I mean, basically the defense is, I mean, the, the, the prosecution case is obviously that the, you know, kneeling on someone's neck for nine and a half minutes is not a great idea and killed George Floyd. And the defense is basically, it could have been anything, including they're trying to say that he may have suffocated on the tailpipe of the car, which is fucking ridiculous. Um, so, I mean, the defense case is, is very, very thin, and I think the prosecution has done an absolutely great job of shredding every so-called expert that the defense has tried to call. So, I mean, from a, I, I mean, I don't want to say an objective point of view. I think he should be found guilty, so I'm not trying to say that I'm being objective, but trying to view this objectively, I, I don't think the defense has scored hardly any points in this entire trial. So, as someone who's followed this, uh, largely from Twitter, and I have watched the bits and pieces, especially of the medical uh, testimony, has been uh, just the the thing that's most naturally interesting to me. Uh, the three takeaways I have from this trial so far, again, this is just secondhand impressions. One uh, is not surprising at all. Uh, the medical testimony has overwhelmingly been he George Floyd would have lived, would not have died if he didn't have you know a knee on his neck for you know seven eight nine minutes whatever the toll ends up being i i think that's common sense and uh you know but there's plenty of testimony and again i think the testimony against that has been largely um debunked uh two and maybe you can speak a little bit more about this uh i'm i was surprised at the number of law enforcement people particularly in the state of minnesota I'm not going to say that like this Chauvin was, you know, thrown under the bus, like that there was a concerted plan to just say that we're going to hang this guy out to dry and, uh, you know, he's going to be a scapegoat. But uh, overwhelming, you know, testimony from police officers that he did not follow policy, that this is not how 
uh, you know, he was trained and this was not appropriate behavior. What do you think about that? Yeah, I was, I was a little bit surprised that the defense wasn't able to find at least a couple, maybe old school is, is a nice way to put it. Police officers that would defended what he did a little bit more. But I mean, yeah, I, the testimony, you know, and, and I mean, they called people all from the, the longest serving homicide detective all the way up to the chief of police in Minneapolis. And then some of the officers that were, I mean, nobody really said that there was anything other than wrong. I mean, which, which was refreshing to see because, you know, you hear about the, that thin blue line so often that, you know, police will just back each other no matter what. So it was a bit refreshing to see that there were plenty of people that were willing to take the stand and say, what happened here was certainly not right. I was also a little surprised that the defense, really, I think it, I, I think it would have made more sense to me if the defense conceded the point that what he did was outside of policy and tried to argue a bit more that it was outside of policy but it wasn't criminal. Mm-hmm. And, and I think they tried to just score little victories on trying to say, yeah, maybe this was like sort of policy adjacent. And so I, I was a little confused by the defense tactic. I think I would have, I think they would have played better to the jury for them to just concede the point that what he did was outside of policy, but that doesn't make it criminal. And, and I think the way they tried to defend against it and chip away at it kind of just made them look stupid. And I mean, just again, I'm not again to play armchair psychologist. Like the the people who want to vote not guilty, do you think they're really going to be like the thing that's going to make them hold firm to that is going to be like a policy argument? Like they're, you know, the thought is going to be he was a police officer, and police officers have a ridiculous, in these people's opinions, amount of latitude to do what they want including killing people in the name of i don't know protecting society or administering the law or whatever you want to call it like i just don't you know understand you know don't understand the thought that oh like if we if we prove that this was by policy that this is fine like it's just a a weird line of reasoning for me yeah and i think it was made even weirder by the fact i don't think those points landed at all like i think if they could have made a better case that it was within the policy it would have it, because I think the line of, of thinking there is if it's within policy, you can't really get mad at this guy. It's the policy that's wrong. It's not him personally making you know a criminal choice. Right. And I, I think I think if you can make that land, that's the argument. But I don't think they even came close to making that land. Yeah. And, and I think they're left exactly where you know the way you described it. Since they weren't able to make it land that it was within policy because it wasn't then they're left in this no man's land of trying to say, you know, paint it as well, but if it were, it would have been fine. And I, th- I don't think that's going to play well with the jury at all. Yeah. Okay. My third point on this is, is probably a bit reductive, but uh, if you don't testify in your own defense that you didn't kill somebody, then you're, you're, you're guilty of sin. Like, no, 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 I no, you don't 100%, think so? 100% disagree with you. Oh, this. okay. Explain to me why then. Because you open yourself up to a cross-examination that is going to be licking their chops to try and paint everything you do into a negative light. But you don't think you can you can prep for that and you can outweigh that you can you can because there, there's no record of this guy going out on the stand and say, I I didn't kill like I didn't murder this person. You know, I feared for my life and took action that I thought was within bounds and and I'm not guilty of this. 
now yes i agree and that you know it's the whole job of the prosecutor to to make you look awful and 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 win the case or whatever but you know you really you can be coached to just shut it down and answer with just the facts and 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 whatnot it just to me man if i like if i if i was on on the stand and it was just like do you want to go testify if if i truly believe that i was innocent you know i might even just ignore my lawyer's advice and still want to testify just because i truly wanted to just tell the world under oath that i didn't believe i was guilty and to me it just feels like man if you're just gonna plead the fifth and not or you know not plead the fifth but you know if you're just not gonna go uh, on the stand in your own defense man it just it just seems bad it just seems like a bad look to me so so a couple of things so first of all i mean i I think you made the first point that i was gonna make of it's the prosecution's job to prove that he did it it's not his job to prove that he's innocent i think the second thing is i think people have a perception from tv and 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 there's even (laughs) in, in legal research something called the law and order effect where people want everything wrapped up in an ice bow when it's not wrapped up in an ice bow they don't like it Uh it's legitimate legal research on on the law and order effect a majority of defendants do not take the stand so that this is in no way unique okay Uh, an overwhelming majority of defendants do not take the stand and and third i mean sure he gets up there and says that he's innocent but i mean he he pleaded innocent at his arraignment and said yeah i didn't do this so he is on the legal record as saying he didn't do it and if you're the defense I mean, what questions do you ask him? You get up there and say, did, did you do it? No. Were you in fear? Yeah. Where do you go from there? If you're the prosecution, you play that, ta- you play that video. You say, okay, you know, Mr. Chauvin, we're going to put on this tape. Are you afraid for your life at this point? And you do that for nine and a half minutes. And where he says, yes, man, that is also not a good look in court of trying to justify where, he, you know, he's shaking the pepper spray at people. He's talking to people. He's saying, don't do drugs, kids while trying to imply that he is still in fear for his life, that, that's a worse look than not getting on the stand at all. Okay. I think tactically he made the right call. You have 100% convinced me that this was the right decision. Because <laughs> holy shit, that would, be, that would be such a, oh man. Again, because I'm in the camp. I mean, obviously, you know, we've given our thoughts on this before. Like, I don't understand how you can watch. And I guess I'll, I'll pose the question to you like this how did they even get a jury for this case? Like who hasn't watched this video, especially if you live in the area and and, man, I just feel like all you need to do is you just need to, if you watch the video from start to finish, like I don't see how any way in God's green earth, this guy isn't guilty of sin. And I agree with you, but I I think this trial has actually been a really good example of the legal system working to an extent i mean the legal system working the way that it's supposed to work yeah i mean and i mean that the prosecution did they put the tape on and said i mean their open argument was you can believe your eyes right yeah (laughs) we're going to show you the tape and what you saw is i mean there's nothing tricky about this this is what happened and that i mean the accused got to put on defense it was a shitty defense i don't think they made much of a defense but it was a fair process and I think that makes it so much better. And I've read a lot of just awful takes that, you know, when the tape came out, he should have been convicted. No, that's not the way the system works. This is the system working. You get up there, you put on your shit defense. You've had every opportunity to prove why you shouldn't be convicted. And then 
hopefully at the end of the day he's absolutely convicted because he's guilty as shit so this is this is the system working i mean it's it's a very broken system but in this case i think i think everything has gone pretty cleanly all right well we can only hope that justice is served in this case let's talk about an example where justice was not served i can't even it's friday i can't even believe that this story was this week it it already feels like it's at least you know it is a part of last week's news story with how much stuff has happened dante wright on sunday afternoon uh dante wright was pulled over for a traffic violation i still don't know what the official version of the story is there's claims that it was because he had some air freshener hanging off of his rear view uh, mirror. There's claims that it was because uh, his registration was expired and they ran his plates regardless. Uh, traffic violation pulled over uh, Officer Kim Potter, 26-year-old, uh, 26-year veteran of the Brooklyn Center Police Department. As, as explained by her chief, believe that she had pulled her taser when she had actually pulled her gun fired a shot killed Dante Wright as of Tuesday both uh, her and uh, Chief Gannon had resigned from their positions on Wednesday Miss Potter had been arrested faces a charge of second degree manslaughter uh, and the last note I'll say before we open this up is that immediately after this had happened the Brooklyn Center Police Department blew a thin blue line flag below the American flag at their police department uh, before the mayor ordered it taken down. So Andy, what do we even say about this? I wish this were more unique than it was in this country, but at, at this point, police have been empowered to carry out death sentence. I mean, it, it's exactly what you said, you know, going from the Chauvin trial where he's you know, had had his day in court. But I mean, this is the police are just executing people without this is the system not working. I don't even know why you got to tase. I guess he was trying to drive away. Fuck it. You have his his license plate. <laughs> yep. Go pick him up. Go home. Go to his. I mean, go to his mom's house. Pick him up. We don't need to be killing people in the streets because they got pulled over for an air freshener or a robbery warrant, whatever it was. I don't give a shit if it was for a warrant. You know where he is. Go arrest him. Somewhere else, if it's that important to you, why the fuck are you shooting people because they're driving away? He didn't attack the officer. He tried to drive away. Yeah. And again, I mean... And that's not even unique. This this isn't new. This is the shit that keeps happening in America. And people just say... People just justify it and say it's fine. People don't care. People literally have so little of a value on human life that their first reaction is, let's look up Dante Wright's criminal record. Let's find reasons why he deserved to be murdered in the fucking streets because he had a robbery warrant. You got me going a little bit. (laughs) No, I mean, I just, I, I just vacillate between, you know, just blinding rage and just like, just horrible numbness. Like, you know, I think the status is somewhere between once every three to four days in this country, there's a, there's a, a death from a traffic stop. And again, just for something like this, like it's just, it, there's just no need for it. There's just no, no need for it at all. I mean, nothing more poignant, uh, you know, poignant than uh, George Floyd and Dante Wright are connected. Uh, they are two men. Uh, while they never met, they are both black fathers who died in confrontations with the police. 
Both were from the Minneapolis area, and on Tuesday, it was revealed that the two men had a more personal connection. Floyd's girlfriend, Courtney Ross, was Wright's former school teacher. Uh, and I just... It's all, it's all Hennepin County, man. It's the same county. It's, it's, it's unbelievable, uh, you know, and you, and you, you get all this feedback about, oh, these guys are, are, you know, why can't they just peacefully protest and why you got to riot and why you got to vandalize things. And it's just like, really? Like that's the response after this happens over and over and over again. It's the same reason why after every school shooting, people get upset because fucking nothing happens. It's the same thing. People are rioting. People are pissed because this has been happening. And we've just been shining. I mean, this has been happening for hundreds of years. We've just been shining more light on it because everyone carries a camera around in their pocket. It keeps happening. And people are going to keep rioting, if you want to call that. But I don't even think that's the right thing to say. People are going to continue taking to the streets because this shit just keeps happening and nothing is changing. Yeah, and I I want to make a point about this. Like, okay, like it, you know, you hear things like, "Well, Josh, Nandy, what about black on black crime?" And it's like, this I I I don't understand how people can't see the obvious in that police shootings and killings are a completely separate entity than all of the other violence that occurs in this country the police are the state the police are the government and you are so close you are so unbelievably close to you know fascist authoritarian dictatorships when you have police who are again not all cases not all police officers yada 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 but when when it seemingly looks like the police have the ability to assassinate the citizenry and face, it's unlikely to face real consequences, except maybe you lose your job and you move across the country and go work at a different police station, uh, you know, somewhere else. When, when the government, when the state is executing its own citizens, it is a different thing than any other type of violence and i just how is that not so blindingly obvious to render those arguments you know moot because people don't want it to because people just want to pretend like everything in this country is great and that there's no problems and i mean let's just i mean i'll say it people are okay with racism happening because it's happening to people that don't look like them or it doesn't look like their brothers or their sons and as long as it's not happening to people that look like them, they don't care. They don't have that same value for human life. I mean, I, I think to me, the most disgusting thing is every time police violence like this happens, the criminal records come out. I, I mean, that's, that's the first thing is to say, well, what, what did this person do? What's, you know, what, what skeletons are in their closet? It doesn't matter. It, yeah, doesn't, I mean, it, do, it doesn't matter. None of these are crimes punishable by death in the street. We don't have that in America. We come close because we're a goddamn backwards country that still thinks it's okay to have the death penalty, even though no civilized country in the world has it. And it, we kill innocent people every single year. And it doesn't work. But none of these crimes are punishable, even by our fucked up death penalty that we have in this country. None of these crimes are punishable by death anyway. It doesn't matter. It doesn't black on black crime has nothing to do with this. We are paying tax money to police to kill our citizens. 
and oh, we pay their salaries a lot of tax money, a lot, tons of overtime. We pay them overtime. We pay them so they're making hundred thousand dollars a year to gun down people in the streets. Yeah, and again, this goes back to my, uh, you know, what's the complete phrase for bad apple and bad apple spoiling the bunch? I mean, again, obviously not all police officers are, are doing this. But again, what do you call the police officers who walk by and say nothing when, you know, Derek Chauvin is, you know, has his knee on somebody's neck or when a police officer pushes down a 75 year old man and he's bleeding out of the ear and you just keep walking by like there just becomes something so fundamentally wrong with the system itself to just, you know, I just it seems more and more I know that people get nervous about you know disbanding the police and uh you know in in that in that concept of you know reducing police presence but how are we not at the point where a complete reimagining of what the system is is the only suitable way to move forward i just don't understand because we live in a country where sandy hook happened and we said let's go shoot our shooty toys on the weekend instead of saying this is a fucking problem and we need to do something about it. So this is absolutely on brand for America to look at a problem that's glaringly obvious and say, yeah, let's just sweep this under the rug and pretend like it's not happening. So it's actually very believable in this country to me. So, And it's not, it's not individual. I mean, there are individual police officers make horrible mistakes. I mean, there are, individual police officers that are just shitty people and there are individual police officers that are absolutely 100% great human beings it's a broken system it's not an attack on the people and that's something that I think the right really can't understand is that we're not trying to say that you know the police officers that you know are bad people it's a broken system I mean it's it's no child left behind the teachers aren't bad the system is bad it's it's very similar to me with the police. It's it's a broken system, and it's not just bad apples. It's bad apples created by a bad system, or it's you know so so apples that maybe you could put in the bag that are put in a really shitty orchard and have no chance to grow. Yeah, it's it's just hard to understand. I mean, you would think again, like you know the the analogy that I come back to is is it's I'm sorry, but there are just some professions where you just there's a zero tolerance tolerance policy for mistakes you know you don't you know say to a pilot oh you know well most of the time i'm pretty good but sometimes i forget to hit the button that puts the wheels down when we're landing and just hopefully i remember to do it this time you know it's you just don't you don't get to do what kim potter said where your gun goes on your dominant arm side and your taser goes on your non-dominant arm side and to say I've been in the force for 26 years and I reached for a gun and didn't realize before I pulled the trigger that it was a taser. You just, you just don't get to say that. I understand that there's a very high stress demanding job that pushes people to their limits. I certainly don't want it. I certainly am not cut out for it, but nobody's also making you do this job. Like if this is something that you can't handle, well, there's no shame, you know, walk away and 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 do something else man it's just really it's just really difficult i don't know and i mean let's just talk about her situation you didn't even need the taser it didn't even need to get to that point no it didn't you could have just let him drive away you had his like you would run his license plate at that point when you pulled him over 
follow him in the car. You don't have to follow him. Pick him up later. Yeah. Add that to his charges. Throw him in. I mean, send him through a, a criminal justice system that doesn't really work, and uh, throw him in jail if that's what you got to do. Well, Andy, I would. I really wanted to say that that was the end of it, but really, we uh, saved the most heartbreaking incident for last. So uh, again, yet this week, the news comes out. This has happened quite a quite a bit ago, March 29th in Chicago. Police respond to reported gunshots. 13-year-old 7th grader, Adam Salido, uh, runs from the police, has a gun, is armed, throws the gun away against the fence, is told to put his hand up by the police officer who had chased him, puts his hands up, they're demonstrably empty, complies with the police officer, does not have a gun in his hand, shot once in the chest, and, and dies. Uh, the reason that uh, you know, this just became a story this week uh, the Chicago Civilian Office of Police Accountability eventually decides to release the body cam footage. Uh, and to be clear, and again, this is something that I feel like needs to marinate in the public conscience a little bit more. Less than a week uh, after this happened, a Cook County prosecutor said Adam Toledo had a gun in his hand when he was shot. And then now the story has been updated to say the prosecutor failed to fully inform himself before speaking in court. So, Andy, in general, make it a rule to not really watch these videos um, because there's enough shit in the world uh, without, you know, having to do that. Uh, it's kind of my perspective, and I do take a very kind of somewhat selfish, bury my head in the sand and wait for my fucking prom, uh, you know, perspective and just try not to engage, engage with it as little as possible. Uh, but for whatever reason, you know, I said that, oh, hey, you know, I'm going to sit and watch the video of this 13-year-old. And again, this is graphic. Do not watch this unless you really, you know, I, I want to be very clear. You will see a person essentially murdered uh, in real life on this video. 13 years old, man. Like, this is really hard. This is one of the harder things that I've ever seen. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I watched that and just immediately went out into the basement to cry because it's, it, it is all, and you're right. I, I, I'm, I'm with you that don't watch it unless you have to, but at the same time, especially if you're someone who, I don't know, is, is maybe more on the fence than we are with police violence, maybe this is one to watch. 13 years old, 13. Yeah. Like you can't even do the like Fox News bullshit. Oh, this 16-year-old man, 13. You saw that that Sean Hannity called him a 13-year-old man, right? Did he really? Oh, yeah, cuz he's him. a piece of shit. Oh. 13, dude. This just... kid this kid plays with Legos. This kid has like a Hot Wheels collection cuz he's 13. 7th grade. And, and I think my biggest question is if you're the police, what do you want him to do? I mean, should he have had a gun? No. Like, it's an issue that a 13-year-old has a gun. It's, cert again, certainly not a crime punishable by death. He didn't use it. He didn't attack someone with it. Should he have it? No. Is that a community problem? Yes. Is that something that if we invest in our communities, we would probably reduce the number of 13-year-olds that have a gun? Absolutely. That's definitely uh, for, for a, a, different, a different time and in, in a different part of the show, but 
he, he wasn't perfect, but so the police claimed that they saw that he had a gun, chased him and said, put down the gun and put up your hands. And he does. And they still shoot him. So what, what do you want him to do? He followed every direction. And that's usually the racist rights. What they say is, you know, comply and these things will happen. Well, he did. And they still shot him. What do you want the kid to do? And that's the thing, like, too, you're going to hear people say, oh, well, he was a 13 year old that had a gun. These are the same people who walk around, you know, with completely legal, you know, gun permits, concealed carry permits or whatever. And you're making the argument essentially that you too, as somebody who just has a gun on you, well, it's okay for the police to shoot you because you have a gun on you. Like, it's just, it's so, your arguments just, they're so bad. It doesn't matter that he was out at 2.30 in the morning. It doesn't matter that hey, he has a gun, which he threw away. It just, it, it doesn't matter. Yeah, a police officer chased him down, asked him to do something. The person complied. The person was not armed. And in a second, again, in a second, the, the, the amount of time from put your effing hands in the air to him doing that to the officer shooting was all accomplished just like that, just that quick. And just, you might as you might as well like again you know i'll I'll take i'll take this one for you i'm the one's gonna say you might as well just shot him right then and there like don't ask him to put his hands up just chase him down and when you get within range just shoot him because that's essentially what you did there was no way in the world for him to respond there was no way in the world for him not to get shot as soon as he had the gun and he ran from the comps you might as well just say okay if you if you if you're if a police man knows you're armed and you run away from him, it's perfectly okay for you to shoot him, because that's exactly what happened in this case. Yeah, I, I, I mean, if he, if he's so terrifying that you're afraid he's going to shoot you at any moment, don't chase him down the alley. Let him go. I, I, again, I don't disagree with you at all on what you just said, but I'm just so tired of Breonna Taylor. Oh, well, let's let's revise our no-knock warrant policy. And this has happened now in in the case of Adam Toledo, that Chicago mayor is like, oh, we really need to revamp our foot chase policy. This is the same police department that shot Laquan McDonald 13 times. They've ever, you had a chance to reform then, you haven't done shit. It's, it's no, it's not, you can't just tell me, we're going to take this narrow aspect of our policy and we're going to change it. No, you need a systemic change. You need the burn the policy department down and start from scratch because what you're doing right now is not working and is not working means that police are assassinating people full stop i know people think that's ridiculous hyperbole i don't know how else to describe it police are executing people in the streets full stop that's the reality of the situation and if it doesn't get you fired up i don't know what else to say to you this is the same country that Sandy Hook happened and there's people that denied it and said that that's not even real. And a vast majority of people in a certain demographic think that their shooty toys are more important than anything else. I, and it's going to be the same story here. People are going to look at, at, at the criminal records and they're going to continue to just keep the institutions of racism in effect because that's more important to them than human life. So when, when you wear your Make America Great Again hat, you're going back a hell of a long time because this country has not been great for, for a while. And this is just absolutely one of the worst things about it. 
13 years old. That's that's all I can say. And people are defending it. I know. The murder of a child. I don't know. And then I, I don't even really know what FedEx, what happened with FedEx today in Indianapolis. A bunch of people died again. I think we're up to like, I don't know, it was like 45 mass shootings since since April. And that, that seems, maybe it was the start of the year. I don't know. But honestly, I don't know. 45 for April could be what it is too with, with how it goes in this country and, and how you know, people have been pent up and, and not had access to maybe the resources they normally have had pre-pandemic. I, I, I don't even know. I don't even know what to say anymore, I guess. I, people are so upset about having to stay in their houses because of the pandemic. You, you might as well just stay in the house because you might get shot too. I mean, some days it just really feels like that. I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, th- I this know. is a country that had a pandemic that we had plenty of things that we could have done to lessen the impact of it and said, yeah, I don't care enough to do that. I mean, this is a country that has a gun violence problem that much like the pandemic, we just look at and say, eh, it's the cost of doing business. I think even the most conservative estimates about the pandemic has said that we could have easily have the amount of deaths that we have if we just would have ignored Trump and, and you know, wore masks and social distance and and taken this more seriously. So I, I don't, what, what do you even say? I, I don't know. Yeah, man, this 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 has been a tough one. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's try to move past this. Um, so, friend of the show, the friend of the show, Zach, uh, sent me a podcast episode that I thought was insanely interesting. Sent it on to you. You and I both listened. Ezra Klein, I don't know. He used to work at the Atlantic. I don't know exactly where he's holed up now, I think. But he has a podcast, and the episode title of his podcast was Did the Boomers Ruin America? And the format of this podcast I thought was really interesting, uh, where Ezra basically moderated a conversation between two millennials who agree with this topic, uh, but otherwise completely disagree on pretty much everything else. One is a very liberal millennial one is a very conservative trump voting millennial and they kind of discussed you know uh they uh, you know this the gist of the episode was what boomers have done uh to to hurt american society but i would say the back half of the episode uh focused more just on like societal and cultural forces that uh, are affecting our generation the millennial generation uh and i thought there were some really interesting ideas that uh, I wanted to discuss with you, Andy. But first, just overall impressions of the of the episode. Yeah, so a- after reading this, I went and looked up exactly who the baby boomers were, and I was really excited to see that my parents do not fall into that generation, so I, I feel like I can tee off on the baby boomers knowing that I'm not saying anything about my parents' generation, but it's the generation before them. So that's, that was <laughs> my first thought was pretty exciting that I don't have to hold back because it's not the pe- it's not people that i care about that did this to us <laughs> i'm gonna inter- i'm gonna interject real quick i i did the exact same thing uh <laughs> my parents are the oldest gen xers essentially now uh uh to hold against my parents my parents have always said that they uh they associate more with people who are older than them and always feel like they're a little bit older than they actually are so maybe they are boomers at heart but by definition mine are gen xers as well very nice. 
All right. So I continue. mean, just as you know, a little bit of a, a podcast review. I thought the show itself was done really, really well. I, I thought, you know, Ezra Klein with uh, New York Times, by the way. Thank you. Um, Thank you. But I thought he did a, a really good job of, of mediating to the point that it wasn't really a back and forth like in a nasty way but you know it was, it was a very respectful back and forth between the the two people i think they were authors that he had on the show so i i just thought it was it was really fascinating it was a great listen i went back and listened to it, some parts of it a couple of times and, and i thought they made i mean i i was surprised that i did agree with some of the ideas from the trump voter so i mean that you know i, I don't often do that so, so that was kind of interesting but i do think that they touched on a lot of a lot of really good reasons why I, I i always kind of had a suspicion that like old people really fucked up our economic chances but i think this put it into more tangible terms for me if that makes sense yeah absolutely um and again we'll uh we'll give a quick disclaimer not all boomers um again i'm sure we all know boomers who are, are very nice wonderful generous people uh again none of none of our uh you know immediate friends and family you know uh made the decisions and altered, uh, you know, power structures in the country, you know, that affected uh, our generation. Uh, but I will, you know, say that I, I generally do agree with the thesis of this topic. And I guess just to jump off on a thing that, you know, you and I probably both agree on the thing that I agreed the most with the conservative millennial is just how our generation was so encouraged to go to college like at the expense of everything else uh when the gen that generation did not also put in place measures to keep college remotely even close to affordable uh and how pushing people to go to college when there's so much data on more and more people are taking more than four years or not finishing at all or uh, earning bachelor's degrees that ultimately don't have uh, the value that they once had combined with the student loan debt crisis that is going on in this country. Uh, and the, the thought was maybe that that boomers should have pulled up the ladder behind them more than they did uh, and to keep everybody from going to college and, you know, experiencing this kind of crisis. Now, there's certainly an argument to be made as a liberal millennial did uh, that, you know, a more educated pop populace is, is good for a number of reasons. Uh, but that was the thing that stuck out to me most from the conservative millennial. And I'm going to, I'm going to put, I'm going to keep referring to them in that way. I am going to find uh, guest names real quick, just because it's incredibly demeaning to, to, to call them that and not, and not at least mention their names at least once. So go ahead and talk and I'm going to, I'm going to look them up real quick. Yeah. Um, I, I I'm with you on that. The, I mean, the college thing is something that I've been, you know, over the years, I've done some reading on and some thinking on. And yeah, I think college now is just such an expectation that people kind of just almost go without thinking. And, and I know that that's actually a conversation we've had in our, in our house of, do our kids have to go to college? And it's like, ah, no. And, and I think that's, you know, it feels almost a little bit revolutionary to say, if that's something they want to do. 100% support, but that's also not going to be something that we, I, I'm going to expect from them just, you know, as kind of a, a rite of passage, you know, but there to be a little bit more intentionality to it and a little bit more thought behind it. So I, I, I think that 
you're right. I think that really stuck with me too. And just the affordability of college to the point where, I mean, there, there's plenty of people going to college with degrees that are never going to be able to pay off the student loans that would be better off taking probably close to the same jobs that they have now without going and ending up $40,000 in debt. So, and, and I don't, it's tough because you're selling student loans to people that are, you know, 18 with a dream. And I don't know that, the, and, you know, colleges and, and you know, the, the whole higher education industrial complex does a really good job of selling. Here's all the great things about college. Here's all, you know, the success that you'll be. And it's like, eh, but is that real? Are we giving people a realistic idea of what they're getting themselves into? And I think the answer to that is probably no. No, I, I don't think we are. Uh, so I have a quite, quite a few things to say about that. Uh, just real quick, though. Liberal millennial uh, is who we're referring to is Jill Filipovic, a journalist, former lawyer, and author of OK Boomer, Let's Talk, How My Generation Got Left Behind. Uh, and then conservative millennial Helen Andrews, senior editor of the American Conservative and author of Boomers, the men and women who promise freedom and deliver disaster. Uh, so I just wanted to make sure we give credit where credit is due. Um, yeah, so I definitely do feel like the stereotype is true that our generation was told you must go to college pretty much no matter what, like that is the one true way. Um, and then now it's funny because as we graduated from college and moved on and started our careers, I hear my parents' generation and the generations above them say, oh, well, you know, you guys should have went to trade school and, you know, and, and not taking on all this debt and, and learned a skill. It's just like, you were the generation that told us to go to college in the first place. As, as far as what is my expectation for my children? Well, <laughs> to, to be a little uh, tongue in cheek, uh, there's not a lot of uh, great ro role models in this house for uh, handiwork and skills uh, and, you know, carpentry and, and plumbing and electrical work and whatnot. So uh, college is probably going to be the chosen path for uh, my two boys, if I had to guess. But if they show an aptitude and, and have a plan and, uh, you know, and have a desire to do something else that's... Um, meaningful and financially wise and, and all that by all means uh you know I'm, I'm not holding them to that standard uh and that's my rational brain talking right like you know in a decade from now am I 100 is that going to be what my true feelings are uh if if one of them decides to spurn college for something like that I I don't know I'll have to see um, but yeah, I mean, if you have a plan and you have a way to support yourself, uh, and your family and it doesn't involve college and it's reasonable by all means. Yeah. hundred percent. I think, I, I think there's less structure than ever before. And I think that's really tough for kids growing up where, I mean, you know, where we kind of had that, like, you know, you go to high school, you go to college, you get a job. I, I think the economy has become so diverse that that's not even going to be the reality for our, I mean, our, our kids will probably work in increasingly gig economies where they have, you know, three or four part-time deals going on rather than the one full-time, you know, 40 hours a week plus overtime kind of deals that, you know, our parents had and are increasingly disappearing from us. So I mean, who knows what the economic landscape is going to look like, you know, in, in 10 to 20 years when our kids are really getting out into it. It will be a travesty if 
Because by, by that point, our generation is going to start pulling the levers of power. That That is unacceptable to me if that's what our kids, uh, you know, grow into. Unless we have drastically changed uh, the social support net of this country as far as healthcare and you know, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I can envision something like that if there's Medicare for all and your insur- health insurance isn't tied to your job. And, you know, there's maybe there's, uh, you know, UBI or maybe there's, you know, just a whole lot more support than what there is now. But no, I mean, that's just not like I'm not I don't need my, my you know, my son to be driving Uber to make ends meet as part of like five different gigs that he does. And let's say again, if it's, it's something that he wants to do and he likes that lifestyle, especially, you know, in those right after college years, I mean, great. But I, I we've got to slow the deterioration of work-life balance and, and workers' right, the rights that's going on. And hopefully, by the time our kids come of age and start graduating college or trade school or, or whatever they're doing, um, you know, we have made some progress. But uh, I share your skepticism. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's possibly that we can fundamental, fundamentally change the entire economic structure of our country in the next, like, 10 years. But... I mean, we might want to get to work on that now if that's going to happen. And much, man, much like with, much like with policing, yeah, we can hope. Man, you said ten years, and it just made me want to like crawl like inside of myself and and just you know rock back and forth. Ten years. <laughs> it's, it's to be it's fair. Be... I I have the oldest, so it's a little uh, bit longer for you. I mean, you have more uh, like oh, thirteen. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, we're so, old. so not a whole lot more <laughs> okay uh what else jumped out at you from this episode um i think the discussion on marriage was pretty interesting yes this is what this is the first thing that i gravitated towards from this episode so the the con uh do you want to walk us through capstone versus cornerstone which is kind of the the the, the formula that they used to talk about uh marriage yeah, so to try and boil it down real quick, I think the question was, is marriage something you do at the beginning of, of your adulthood and that's kind of a, a base to grow from? Or is that something you kind of do once you get established and for lack of a better word, you kind of have your shit figured out as an adult? Yep. So, um, you know, the stereotype is that uh, our parents' generation and the generations before them, uh, marriage was more of that cornerstone where you you, you got married and then you figured shit out afterwards. And then our generation and looking to the generations, uh, you know, right below us as they start uh, becoming, you know, out of college and, uh, you know, potentially thinking about getting married. Uh, it's more of a, a capstone where you've got your whole, you're down the path of what your life is going to be. And then you get married. So I, this was uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, I, I talked to Zach about quite a bit. Um, I would you say that how, how would you characterize your marriage? I guess it would these two polls. That's that's a little bit tough. I definitely wouldn't say cornerstone because I was 30. But I also don't think I have my shit figured out. So I don't <laughs> know if I would call it a capstone. So I guess somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I I think. Zach told me that I was kind of hybrid, and I think that's right. I, I also don't think I neatly fit in either of these, but I would say I'm probably 
about as cornerstone as a lot of millennials are going to be, I guess. My wife and I got married. Let's see. Let's do some quick math here. Uh, we were just not quite yet 25 when we were married. So 24, I feel like, is pretty early for where we're at in the millennial cycle. Uh, we were the first people in our circle of friends to, to get married and, and have kids. Uh, but again, we were by no means at the very beginning, uh, you know, April and I both went to the same high school, but didn't really know each other. You know, we had finished up our, our college years. Uh, and I had moved back to Toledo. We had moved to Wisconsin for a year, came back to Toledo and then we're married. But I do feel that we share a lot of cornerstone characteristics in that we both wanted to be young parents have our kids early on in our relationship and you know again we got the first thing that we did is we got married and then a couple of weeks later we closed on our first house and then a couple of weeks later we find out that uh you know that april's pregnant and we're going to start our family uh so in that way i really did start the most important you know kind of traditional milestones with her as my wife but again it wasn't so early that i would say maybe it's a true cornerstone so yeah, I would agree. I think of of people that I know, you're probably the closest to a cornerstone. And I think the rest of us, you know, probably just head further and further towards that capstone orientation. Yeah. And uh, and it's interesting because I, I have never really thought of marriage in these terms until I listened to this episode. But it does make sense for me in the fact that I was raised in very much a cornerstone household uh my parents were very young when they were married and again they kind of followed in the same trajectory where they were more uh you know right out of high school uh did not go to the same high school or anything like that but right out of high school got married uh had four kids you know bounced around the country in various houses and whatnot but really did kind of that is the uh it was the first big milestone for them uh, and I was always just raised in the household and I always grew up thinking that that was kind of the norm that, uh, you know, you, that was the, the trajectory of uh, a normal life. And, uh, you know, that that order was the correct order. Uh, and it's not necessarily that I was actively seeking that, uh, you know, that I was feeling my, you know, societal clock tick and, and really needing to lock down a wife uh, that early on, but it just felt natural to me. And, you know, our, our uh, values and perspective just kind of aligned in that way and it all worked out. But, um, you know, they go on to say in this episode that uh, there's a lot of data that shows that these capstone millennial marriages are some of the most happy, stable, less likely to divorce, you know, marriages. Because, again, the whole principle is you've gotten your shit mostly figured out and then you get married and that stability really can help with marriage. Yeah, I wonder if part of it, too, is I think the expectation of marriage is less for our generation. Like, I think for our parents, you know, there there was that expectation, you know, that generation that you go out and you get married and you find someone and you're married before, you know, kids. And I think, you know, just the way that families look and, and family composition and structure is so different with our generation that I don't think that I don't think the expectation is there. I think, you know, single parents not all that long ago were I think looked at a lot different than they are now you know it was 
yes absolutely a bit of a, you know like a scarlet letter type thing which mm-hmm. was shitty but that's the way people were and, and now i don't think it's nearly as big of a deal i because i think our generation just we don't care so much we're, we're okay right. with you know people doing things their own way and not necessarily falling into those traditional expectations so i'm guessing that are you know the millennial marriages are working out better because it's people getting married because they actually want to not because that's the expectation that they think society has for them and that they need to fulfill um i 100 agree with all of that the only other thing i would add to that is you know there's just also i would say as much as what our expectations are uh and and our values and the, and the forces that are being applied to us. It's some of these economic forces that I think just, I think there are, there are a good chunk of our generation that they would get married if they could, if they, you know, had a suitable partner, but they just can't. And those the reasons why you just can't are, you know, you, you're, you know, our generation is drowning in student loan debt and our generation is, is the first generation forever that's not projected to do as well financially as their parents and our generation is still overwhelmingly living at home at an advanced age and our wages have not risen with the economic success that uh, society's had uh, on and on and on and on. Uh, and it's just, sometimes it can be really hard to get married, start a family, start having kids with, with all that's happening. And so I would pose the question to you, do you think our generation would have more kids on average if some of these major financial constraints were removed? I mean, that's a simple answer. Yes. <laughs> I think that's right. Right. Like I, you know, it's not that I feel like any of my friends have ever given me like the, you know, the side eye or you're crazy or whatever, but I am, you know, a father of three and three is kind of a lot for our generation. I feel like, like, again, almost all of, uh, my friend circle, it's it's two. Two usually seems to kind of be the magic number. You know, I don't know anybody who's who's stuck at an only child uh, on purpose yet, though I have a feeling I will be adding some people like that uh, hopefully over the next few years. Uh, you know who you are if you're listening. But yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, sheer math says that, you know, the average number of kids would rise if some of these factors were were removed but i just i i do kind of wonder a little bit in the back of my mind like have we more settled on we want to have fewer kids in a certain lifestyle than it's we want to have more kids but we just simply purely can't afford to yeah i i think it's just people can't afford to like i i'm pretty easily financially at my limit with two like i, I don't think there's a chance that i could you know give three kids a quality of life or certainly more than that so i mean yeah it's 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 financially limited and something that speaks to that too right one you're going to the capstone marriage which again means you get married later not that again there are lots of people who have children out of wedlock and i i don't really have any huge issue with that uh but if you do want to have kids you know with your with your married partner and you're getting married later eventually you are just going to have you know, by pure math, you're going to have less years to have children. And an interesting point that was made in this podcast that I've never really considered before is we have gotten very good or at least much better than we historically have at not having kids when we don't want to have kids. But we have not really improved the minus, you know, very, very expensive in vitro fertilization methods. 
we have not really improved having kids on the schedule when we want to. And it's like, okay, I'm ready to go. Let's have a baby. Very few people are able to pull that off unless your name is Josh Dole. The man with the golden gun. So uh, 25% of millennial women end their childbearing years with no kids, but only 5% said that they explicitly didn't ever want to have any kids. So there certainly is this gap where, you know, people want to have kids, but for whatever reason, they don't end up having kids. And there could be, you know, medical uh, reasons for that. uh, Lots of reasons for that. But some of them, I'm sure, are just purely financial. Yeah. All right. So the last little piece that I had, and then, you know, let me know if there's anything else you wanted to touch on was uh, this kind of, you know, was somewhat on the pod, somewhat more an offline conversation I had uh, is one versus two income households and kind of what our generation values, both from a a working perspective, a work-life balance perspective, and then kind of what we envision our lives to be for both ourselves and for our children. So again, I'm going to say this, I, we're going to have this conversation in the vacuum of a scenario where a couple could afford to live with just one household income. And there are many, 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 many households where that is not the case. Uh, and by no means am I saying that that is the expectation. Uh, but in a scenario, Andy, where you have just one person needs to work, you can pay all the bills that might be a little tight. Obviously, you don't necessarily have childcare because in this to pay for, because in this example, a parent is staying home with the kids. And so you don't have to pay for that expense. But in a scenario where you have the ability to have a one income household, which has been drastically reduced compared to our parents' generation. You know, do you think there's a lot of appeal to that to pull that off and just have uh, a one income household? Obviously, it's going to vary person by person, but you know, if you had that opportunity, do you think you would still work? Do you think you would stay home? What are, what's kind of your feeling on that? Oh man, I'm staying home if I can. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to be honest. Uh, especially for these younger, like these preschool years, mm-hmm. if I can stay home, I'm hundred percent staying home. Yeah. I mean, I once, mean, once my kids are like school age, I think it becomes a different question. Right. You know, when they sure. don't need you, home, but like when they're little, hell yeah. Somebody staying home. If it, if it were in even remotely possible. For sure. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, especially those early years, right? Because eventually you get to the point where like my kid is in school for six hours a day. Uh, you know, lots of families, you know, have it where one kid is in school, one is not old enough to be in school. So you'd still need childcare uh, and to stay home for those years or whatever. It's just interesting. Like, I I don't really know where I would, I'm, I, I grew up in a household in a very stereotypical, it was the man's expectation to be the financial provider. And my dad, who is a wonderful dad and who I love very much, you know, he, he worked a lot of hours to provide for our family. And that was always just kind of ingrained in me, uh, just, you know, both explicitly and just observationally. And, you know, I, not to the same degree, but I, I somewhat serve that role in this household. And so it's hard to me, for me to just put myself in those shoes. 
but man especially like i the the two things that kind of stick out to me are the my my first two kids so with my oldest i was in a much less stressful position uh and i was able to take significantly more pto not legitimate paternity leave which hopefully our country will get around to at some point for true paid maternity and paternity leave. Uh, but I was t- able to stockpile some PTO and take a good amount of PTO. I was at least off for, you know, a full week, which is still just a tiny drop in the bucket. Uh, but, you know, I was able to come home and, and get the family situated, connect with my, uh, my newborn versus my second son who was born, I believe on a Wednesday and on that Sunday, I was back in the office because the three days that I had been out, it put me so far behind that I just absolutely had to go in to be able to even, you know, breathe to stay in good standing at my job uh, and just remember feeling so utterly miserable um, that, that, man, you just can't replace those hours, uh, those days, those years when they're really young. And, and, and yeah, I, it's, it's just one more thing that we have to deal with that uh, some of our parents and grandparents generation didn't have to. Also people who live in like cool countries, like, you know, Canada and Sweden don't have to <laughs> deal with that, but we don't have to talk about that. And they're probably commie liberal, I don't know, throw in some other adjectives. Wait, do you mean any other developed country in the world except for us essentially? Wait, we're talking about the death penalty again? <laughs> oh, oh, wait. Oh, something else Something else that we're lagging far behind uh, while telling ourselves we're great? Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't... There's just there's just no... There's just no excuse for it. Like, it's... As, as money, you are... This country values money over absolutely everything, and employers have to get rich. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, again, I was going to say, as you were wont to say, but then you took the words right out of my mouth, so... Anything else you want to say about this? I, 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 I'm just, I'm wiped. I'm exhausted. No, I, 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 yeah, I'm the same. I think I'm still coming down from the, uh, the police gun violence. So (laughs) I think we can, we can wrap it here. All right. That sounds good. We're going to move into our list of the week. It's the list of the week. Okay, Andy. I, I pinged you earlier today. You are, you are really good at the on the spot here's a list idea and this one is is really fun top five favorite zoo exhibits why did you pick this yeah so it actually comes from a not great thing at all so no (laughs) here in toledo our our dear louis the elephant so i remember when he was born he was nine um so he died this week of a rare elephant virus but i mean he, he we had a birthday party for him at the zoo every year i mean he, he was a cool dude he was fra- i mean aside from the pandas coming in 88 when we were born and i mean i'm sure that was pretty cool but i don't remember it like this is the coolest thing i ever remember happening towards it was like dude we had an elephant born like that that that's big news that's like you get that on cnn kind of stuff so it was really exciting and it's it's really heartbreaking that he that he died so i thought this could be a nice you know tribute to louis to say favorite zoo animals okay i i know that we have some recency bias for dearly departed louis but there's an answer on my list that is cooler than louis the elephant being born at the zoo and and i will get to it later 
I'm um, looking forward to that. Uh, I give us a little bit of your. You have the wanderlust. You like to take the family to educational and interesting and enlightening experiences. I assume zoos are on that list. What What are some of the highlights besides uh, the wonderful Toledo Zoo, which we will zero zero in on here in a little bit? Yeah, so I was uh, legit going to do what are your favorite zoos, but then I realized that normal people maybe don't even have five zoos that they've been to. <laughs> ding, 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 you got it. Yeah, so we've done most of the big zoos in in the state, so I guess we'll just, you know, highlights of uh, zoos in Ohio. Columbus is awesome, but Columbus is super busy. So mm-hmm. I think Columbus has some really cool exhibits. They have some really unique stuff, but that place is hopping to like, we went on a random weekday, I think took a kid out of school kind of weekday and that place is still just buzzing. So Columbus is very cool, but very busy. Cincinnati. I mean, like with most things with Cincinnati was a bit of a letdown. So Cincinnati zoo is, is pretty highly rated. It was all right. Like I know they, they have Fiona the hippo and people went crazy over her. I thought, the hippo herself is cool. The exhibit kind of sucks. It's really hard to see. I mean, and they murdered Harambe, so I think we should probably move on from there. <laughs> I was going to say, that's what the Cincinnati Zoo is known for. Yeah, I mean, I, I was trying to, to shit talk the actual things about it before we talk about the fact that they're just straight murderers. Um, <laughs> oh, he deserved man. a better fate than that. Cleveland, man. Cleveland is was surprisingly cool so cleveland is not one that you normally hear about with ohio it's it's really columbus and cincinnati and i think i would have cleveland i i mean maybe one maybe two if i were to sit down and make a list cleveland has a cool zoo i mean bring your walking shoes it's a lot of walking and it's uphill so you know i had a stroller at that point so it was a solid workout to push a stroller up and down the hills but they have just really neat exhibits and it is it is huge yes I am just going to jump in real quick because my list is much shorter than yours. Uh, you can, and then you can keep going. Uh, I, besides the Toledo zoo, there are only four zoos that stick out in my head. Really. Um, I have been to both the Cleveland and Columbus zoos, uh, the, Cle- the Cleveland zoo. The only thing I, both when I was pretty young, I don't really remember if we really forayed out to the Columbus zoo where we were down there. Nothing really sticks in my head a ton. The Cleveland Zoo, I remember having uh, an amazing rainforest type exhibit. Yep, it's uh, still there. Uh, on a much bigger scale than what uh, the Toledo Zoo has. Uh, and I remember that just being like super, super cool. It's uh, a whole separate building. Yes. And it, it is really cool. One of the two zoos has like a really big gray wolf exhibit uh, that I remember sticking out in my head. Uh, and then the Madison Zoo is straight trash. <laughs> um, my wife and I went at one point when we lived up there and it is small and it does not have the exhibits are not very good or interesting it does not have a, a wide range of exotic animals uh, so Madison in comparison to Columbus once again it comes up lacking so we are spoiled in the state of Ohio we have really good zoos here okay so Andy it is hard to convince people to want to come to Toledo but if you were going to tell people hey you're in Toledo you need to check this out the Toledo Zoo is fucking baller yes we punch well above our city size with our zoo literally there will never be a ballot initiative for the Toledo Zoo that I don't say yes because 
it's the zoo i, I feel like our library system is is pretty good it, but art museum you know is enjoyable but the toledo zoo is really for me that that uh that crown jewel uh and and i will always sing its praises yeah 100 percent property taxes still voting yes whatever the zoo wants they can have it shut yep. up and take my money yep so my list is going to be 100 percent uh from there again because this is just a place that we go to every year without fail uh the Toledo Zoo uh I don't I think it still has it but definitely when I was a kid I think it was like Monday mornings in the summer you could get in for free uh and so we would go multiple times every summer I used to live very close to the Toledo Zoo uh for a year or two uh it's it's just a it's a wonderful place to take the family yeah so that's only for Lucas County residents but that is still a thing well Wood County can you know, go piss off for a lot of reasons. <laughs> All right, so let's get into it. Uh, go ahead and uh, lead us off with your number five favorite zoo exhibit. So I went with zoo animals. I hope that's all right. Yeah, that's fine. I, I I'm using the I'm going to use animals and exhibits interchangeably. Okay. Um, so for number five on my list, I have something that we don't have in Toledo, and it's koalas because koalas are freaking sweet. They are super cute. They are just bums. All they do is just sit around all day, looking awesome, being very specific about the things that they want to eat, and they don't care. So I think koalas are super cool to see. We did have them at the zoo when we were younger. Yep, we did. Uh, and then it wasn't is it, is it wasn't there like some massive fire in the eucalyptus trees of Australia or whatever and. Now there are like no more koala bears or whatever. I don't even know what the deal is, but uh, I will, I will, tr- I will trust you that they uh, that they aren't at the Toledo Zoo anymore. Yeah, I don't know if those, I don't know if the they're being exhibited in Toledo and the Australian fire that was threatening populations are related at all. But man, these things are sweet. Okay, all right. Uh, so you the whole like sleeping eighteen hours a day appeals to you because it certainly appeals to me. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to do it, but I like to to see somebody that's just living. I, I mean, koalas don't give a fuck. They're living their best life. They're out there saying, <laughs> this is who I am. You want to come see me? Cool. You don't? Whatever. I'm just going to eat a ton of eucalyptus. Deal with it. I, I'm i looking at my list right now, and uh, these are all like tied for first. I love all of these exhibits. <laughs> so I'm just going to pick one. Uh, number five for me. Uh, is the the primate house at the at the uh, at the Toledo Zoo again? All of mine are going to be from the Toledo Zoo, so just I have the most experience with it. Um, in particular, I think if I have to pick, uh, you know, we have chimpanzees and orangutans and gorillas. Either are all there or have all been there. Gorilla probably number one for me in the power rankings. They're, Man, especially especially the the silverbacks are just enormous uh and i i just love the like very like stoic look on their faces uh you can get you know press right up against the glass and they'll they'll come up there just a just a wonderful uh exhibit and definitely uh you know you can really you can really see how close we are genetically to them uh when you when you're up close and personal 
Yeah, that's a great pick. I think the the inside outside setup that we have in Toledo is pretty cool where you can yes. see them kind of out in that like grassland environment. And then also they have the indoor where they have some of the more like en- enrichment type, yep. you know, ac- activities or the vines, the climb and that kind of stuff. So uh-huh. great, great pick there. I think you're right. I mean, the gorillas are kind of the, the kings of the great apes for a reason. Yeah. So very nice pick. All right. Number four for you. Number four. So, you know, th- th- this is the, the, the shout out to our dearly departed. I'm going to put the elephants. I mean, you can't, you can't argue with elephants. I mean, they're just, they're one of those things that you, you really just have to experience up close the size of them. Like, you know, you can see them on TV and you know, they're huge, but when you get next to an elephant, it's like, that's a big dude. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, th- yes. That is indeed a big dude. And man, especially like you get him in the, you know, maybe they'll spray some water or whatever with their trunks. Like, uh, you just got, they're just so big. They just command such a presence. Great, great choice. Cleveland has a pretty cool setup where they'll, they have hanging bags that I think they, some, they must at least sometimes put like treats in and they have these little stumps that the elephants, so they'll put their front feet up on the stumps and really have to like stretch and reach to get to these bags that are high up. So they're at like full, full stretch for the elephant. And that's pretty cool. Cause I mean, they are just massive when they're in that pose. Great choice. Great choice. Number four for me. So in general, I kind of think that fish suck. Never really had a pet fish growing up. Never really had a, had a interest in, in having a, a big glass tank or whatever. Uh, but the, the aquarium both past and present at the Toledo Zoo, you can do some really cool things in the aquarium. Uh, and it's definitely a great place to get out of the sun and into the air condition and see some really cool things that, I mean, again, the bottom of the ocean might as well be Mars uh, for how different it is uh, compared to what we experience up here. Uh, and there's some really cool things there. Yeah, that room where they have like the deep sea with the giant crabs and the flashlight fish and all that. Yep. I mean, the, the flashlight fish have been classic forever. I mean, that, that's always been a Toledo rite of passage. You go in the dark room and check them out. But yeah, the, the aquarium really takes it to the next level. Yeah, I like the feel of the old aquarium more. Just for people who've never been, the old aquarium was a very old building uh, that they... Uh, you know, closed, I think for like three years, somewhere in that ballpark. Yeah, it was a long time. Completely redid it, modernized it. They did keep some of the original like wood and, uh, you know, some of the the feel of it up in the rafters, uh, which is nice. Um, But the old aquarium, they had that little, that little uh, closed off room, like you said, for the flashlight fish. My favorite part of it was, you know, in the farthest back corner, you had like the, the moray eel, and the puffer fish and some of the more exotic uh, ocean dwellers uh, back there. You had some little sharks uh, back there. And the new aquarium is beautiful. Um, and it's dominated by a really big enclosure in the middle that has a sea turtle that has that issue where uh, it like there's something wrong with the pressures and its butt is always up in the air and they need to put some weights on its shell uh, to be able to let it swim normally. Um, but it's uh, just a beautiful, beautiful building when, uh, you know, fish can be really exotic and it's pretty cool. Yeah, the, the aquarium is a great choice. Hmm. All right, number three for you. All right, so we're going to we're gonna stay in the sea here and 
you got to go to Columbus or Cincinnati to see these guys, but manatees. I mean, they're my favorite animal. I can't leave it off the zoo animal list because you can go see them. They would have been easily number one. Again, favorite animal, but they're not 100% the most exciting thing. I mean, ever, but especially in a zoo, <laughs> uh, in, in a zoo tank, you know, they're, they're very chill. They just relax. I mean, similar, I guess they're kind of like the, uh, the koala of the sea. Yeah. They like their snacks. They like just chilling, but I, I do love manatees. I think Columbus has a really nice setup. I think Cleveland or uh, Cincinnati setup is kind of whack. <laughs> it's it's like indoor and, you know, in Columbus, you can, they move, they have, it, it's set up like a mangrove swamp in Florida. And then mm-hmm. in Cincinnati, it's like, here's some manatees. You want to look at them? We don't care. This is Cincinnati. So <laughs> I, I would definitely go to Columbus that's going to be the closest cool place. And it's, it's one of my life streams to see manatees in the wild. So the times I've been to Florida, I've tried to go. My grandparents took us to a place one time that was supposed to be, you know, a good potential spot to see him. And I've never seen him in real life. So it's a life dream. I hope to achieve some time to see him in the wild, but for now I'll have to settle for him at the zoo and they're number three on my list. Okay. All right. Yeah. I was actually going to ask you if you had, uh, you had ever been down there and, and done any of that or whatever so all right i would not have guessed that manatees uh i will keep with the water theme uh and go with something that the toledo zoo is known for uh the hippo aquarium at the toledo zoo uh, again you kind of walk in uh some stairs and you're in kind of an enclosure and you can see both above the water and below the water i believe when i was reading earlier today that i think the first filmed in zoo hippo birth underwater was was videoed there it is uh it has a a personal story behind it it was the first time that i ever got lost lost in quotation marks um i had i my whole family was at the zoo we were looking at the hippos and i had wandered down a ways where they had the little tv that kind of just had the informational program about hippos on the tv all I was doing is I was just standing there listening to it or whatever, but I wandered out of my parents' line of vision and they didn't know where I was. Uh, and that caused a little bit of a ruckus. But uh, the Hippo Aquarium at the Toledo Zoo is really cool. Uh, you can see the hippo swimming around and, and just kind of laid back, chillax. So uh, one of my favorites. Yeah, that's a great choice. It's it's a really unique, you know, setup, I think, to have that above the water and under the water. I think it was super, super unique when it came out. I don't think anybody was doing it. I think it was like the first of its kind. I'd imagine that, you know, somewhere else is doing it now, but yeah, definitely a unique part of our zoo. And another one of those kind of kid rites of passage when you go in there and, you know, the floating hippo poop is always, <laughs> always a crowd pleaser. And the way they have it set up now, the opposite wall is otters, which are awesome. So, I mean, you got hippos and if the hippo action isn't, if it's kind of boring in the hippo tank, you just turn around and boom, you got otters, which are a hundred percent of the time doing something hilarious. So it, it is a nice setup in the hippo aquarium. Good choice. Yeah. The otters are just like, it's just, you know, gravy because they're, they are just ridiculously cute. And it's like, Oh, I, Hey, I'll go look at these things too. So, all right. Number two for you. Number two is a, a fairly new friend to our Toledo zoo. It is the red pandas. I mean, okay. these things, it just cute overload. I don't really have anything else to say about them. They're just super cute. They are super cute, yeah, for <laughs> sure. You know, basically they look kind of raccoonish or whatever, but you know, with that 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 brownish red that coloring, uh, yeah, 
definitely. And again, not something I feel like you necessarily see at a lot of zoos. It's not like one of those commonplace uh, animals. Yeah, they're fairly unique, and they have a a pretty nice setup in Toledo. Yep. The little kind of treehouse situation they got going on is pretty neat. Yep. Number two for me, if I'm going to pick, it's going to be bears. Uh, if I if I have to be more specific, polar bears always kind of just like in the top one or two favorite animals. Uh, we again we've kind of expanded on the the enclosure uh, at the Toledo Zoo, and we do have some you know hippo aquarium type style where you can see them underwater and above water um, at the at, at the new exhibit, newish exhibit they have at the Toledo Zoo. But they, we've had sun bears at the Toledo Zoo. Uh, they randomly moved a grizzly bear within the last, I don't know, X amount of years into the safari zone. And the, the, the grizzly bear has like a really big tin bath bucket. Uh, and they have like a waterfall scenario. And there is nothing uh, that I've ever seen more happy uh, than this, this grizzly bear on a hot summer day just sitting in a bathtub with water under a waterfall uh in the safari zone completely out of place and uh, uh that's number two for me uh that's a great choice the yeah the if they don't have that bathtub which is probably just like a big dog bath like it's not even anything super complex yeah but if they don't have that i don't know if that's as high on the list but yeah see and, and he's always in there always yes. like I, it can be super cold and that dude is still just splashing around and they're living his best life. Yep. That's a great pick. I, I agree. The polar bears are, are pretty baller too. I mean, I had a moment where the polar bear was swimming and like his hand comes up on the glass next to where my hand is. And I mean, I know I have small hands, but Jesus. <laughs> yes. Yes. I can, I can confirm both of those. Yeah. Facts. I mean, I, I figured you'd get me for it. So I, I'd get ahead <laughs> of the game and, and get myself on that one, but. Yep. the paws on a polar bear and i mean that dude is mean he he you are his lunch and if he can get through that wall he's eating you 100 that's that's a pretty cool experience <laughs> yeah I, I i like that one quite a bit the stairs are uh, a little tricky to navigate with a stroller but uh we make do all right sure. drum roll then number one yeah number one is the giraffes man there's just giraffes are just cool Again, it's it's kind of the scale and the scope thing. Like giraffes are absolutely massive. It was always a goal of mine to feed a giraffe because I know that's a thing now. And I don't know that that's like super nature friendly. And <laughs> like, I don't know that you're supposed to do that, but I know the zoo lets you. So don't don't cancel me if, you know, I'm being mean to the giraffes. It's, <laughs> it's from a loving place with you know. just the big old purple tongues and they just take the lettuce from you. So I finally got to do it in, in Cleveland, actually, for the the first time was where I did it. And I thought that was super cool, but I mean, I don't know. Giraffes are just cool. I, I, I don't have a whole lot of justification for it. I like how they're tall. I think they have a really unique pattern. And again, they're an animal that kind of just does what they do. You know, as somebody who's six, four, I really kind of identify with the giraffes <laughs> looking over everyone. Uh, yeah, no. And it's great too. Like I love what, you know, a, a, a staple of our trips to the zoo it's piling everyone into the train and uh, going around and seeing the cheetahs. And eventually you get to the really big enclosure that has all the different types of, you know, gazelles and antelope and, and warthogs. And, uh, and then also in that enclosure, you get drafts. So really cool for sure. Number one for me 
this this place has always been my it's been the josh spot when my family goes uh because no one else really wants to go uh and that spot is the reptile house at the Toledo zoo oh i as a guy that's scared of snakes you're gonna have to sell me on this one i love the reptile house you walk in it's super humid and hot you just know that you're in a different spot i hope they don't modernize that building it has you know it's old stone and it still has that really original feel to it um and i've always just loved reptiles if i was going to have a pet when i was growing up it was either going to be like a gecko or a corn snake um i always just think that reptiles are super cool uh the the reptile house at the Toledo Zoo has, you know, anacondas and reticulated pythons and king cobras and and, and every different kind of, uh, you know, gila monsters and every single kind of lizard and uh, snake. And, and you've also got amphibians in there. And uh, But really the centerpiece, the, the guy that I think is the coolest, Beru, the saltwater crocodile. Uh, I think he's just under 17 feet or maybe he's grown some. Uh, all he does is just sit in the bottom of the pool at, of his exhibit and just chills. Uh, but that guy is an apex predator. Uh, and, and I can't even imagine like there's still times where of all the, all the places that I'm at in the zoo, you know, I'll get up to the edge of that enclosure, but I'll, I'll, I'll take a half step back just because if I go down in the water, I am I'm done. I am completely done so. That's true. That he is a cool dude. And you're right. Another one of those where you just know you're in the presence of something that could destroy you without even a second thought. Maybe not even finish you for dinner. I'm just be like, eh, no, I'm done. Let's move on to something else. And you feel the history too, right? Like you you get a sense of, you know, of millions of years ago, what roamed the earth and just, you know you know kind of you know apex predator ultimate killing machine you know something that you know has been around for a really long time and and likely might continue to be uh in the future so uh i reptile house is it's weird it's different uh it's always been my favorite place in the slayer so great choice and uh don't be like josh and get lost and separated from your family but the video where they like fly baru in on the plane and they show up like you know wheeling him in this giant box basically uh-huh. that they kept him in when they they flew i don't remember where he came from but wherever they flew him from and then transported him to the zoo that's probably my favorite video in the zoo to watch the yep. just the whole process of getting him to toledo was that's a that's a good one yep they flew him all around the world and man he's uh, uh he is just he's almost a dinosaur he's he's crazy so all right, man. That that's we're we're getting ready to wrap this guy up. I'm I'm exhausted, not just because it's uh just about midnight. Uh, kind of uh really really touched on some serious topics, and uh, it's really I I just don't know what to do. I don't know if you know if I should marinate in the anger or just succumb to the despair or just try and block it out and. You know, I don't really know what we can do, but uh, I'm just going to keep keep talking about it. And, you know, if I, you know, change one person's mind or give them a different perspective, maybe that's a small win. So, uh, but yeah, shit's, uh, shit's going on in the country and, and we just got to keep uh, trying to do better.
Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. This this was this was a downer, but I think you're right. I think it's the most important thing is to keep talking about these things and to make sure that you know. I mean, even even something so simple as you know where you said you think that he should have taken the stand and to just say, oh, hold on a minute, you know, to see it from another perspective, those kind of little moments like that, I think are exactly what we have to keep doing. So if, if you're someone that thinks the way that we do and, you know, sees police violence, sees gun violence and says that this shit's a mess, keep the conversation going and convince people that we can do better because we can do better just because a lot of things are going wrong in this country doesn't mean they have to keep going wrong. So keep talking. Let's make this a better place. So our kids and their $250,000 of college debt, you know, at least have a country that's not a complete ramshackle shithole to live in. And go visit the zoo if you need to pick me up because the Toledo Zoo is sweet. Andy, everybody's doing it. <laughs> the thrill is in the view in it. <laughs> zoo in it. Zoo in it. Uh, top five song of all time. I want to go back to my top five songs list and, <laughs> and put everybody's zoo in it. Probably number one. No. You know, real, real quick, the last thing that one of the things I always wanted to do when I was young is I would go to the Toledo Zoo and I would see the like the the fundraising signs where it was like this animal is sponsored by you know, uh, in some local business or some, I'm probably very rich person. And I always wanted to have my name up on one of those signs. Maybe, maybe Buckeye Dads Discuss should sponsor an animal at the zoo. Oh, that would be, yes, let's get on that. All right. We'll have to, we'll have to, to figure out which animal off air, but uh, we'll, we'll have to discuss. <laughs> Love it. All right, everyone. This has been another episode of Buckeye Dads Discuss, and we'll talk to you later. Stay safe, Ohio. Buckeye Dads Discuss is a podcast hosted by Andy and Josh. It's edited by April. You can find us on social media at Buckeye Dads on Twitter. And you can email the show at Buckeye Dads Discuss at gmail.com.